Exodus chapter 32. We begin in verse 1. This is the word of God. Let us hear it. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods, which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what has become of him. And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, of your sons, and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears, and brought them unto Aaron. And he received them at their hand, and fashioned it with a graving tool, after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go, get thee down, for thy people which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I have commanded them, and they have made them a molten calf, and have worshipped it, and have sacrificed thereunto, and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. And Moses besought the Lord his God, and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, For mischief did he bring them out to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. Can I pause here long enough to make a point I know I've made before? And that is the force of Moses' argument in intercession. Basically what Moses is concerned with here is not so much compassion for the idolatrous people as he is the reputation of God himself. What will this do to your reputation, God? If you wipe out this people, what are they going to say in Egypt about you? That you were unable to do this, that you were unable to bring them into the land you promised them. He's pleading the reputation of God. Keep that in mind when it comes to your own prayers and what you pray for. Verse 13 Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants to whom thou swearest by thine own self, and sayest unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. 
And Moses turned and went down from the mount, and the two tables of the testimony were in his hand. The tables were written on both their sides, on the one side and on the other were they written. And the tables were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, graven upon the tables. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said unto Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. And he said, It is not the voice of them that shout for mastery, neither is it the voice of them that cry for being overcome, but the noise of them that sing do I hear. And it came to pass, as soon as he came nigh unto the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger waxed hot, and he cast the tables out of his hands and brake them beneath the mount, And he took the calf which they had made and burnt it in the fire and ground it to powder and strawed it upon the water and made the children of Israel drink of it. And Moses said unto Aaron, What did this people unto thee that thou brought so great a sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord wax hot. Thou knowest the people that they are set on mischief. For they said unto me, Make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we want not what has become of him. And I said unto them, Whosoever hath any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it me. Then I cast it into the fire, and there came out this calf. And Moses saw that the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked under their shame among their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. And he said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side, and go in and out from gate to gate throughout the camp, and slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. And the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and there fell of the people that day about three thousand men. For Moses had said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, even every man upon his son and upon his brother, that he may, that he may bestow upon you a blessing this day. And it came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, Ye have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up unto the Lord, peradventure I shall make an atonement for your sin. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, O this people have sinned a great sin, and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. And the Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. Therefore now go, lead the people unto the place of which I have spoken unto thee. Behold, mine angel shall go before thee. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And the Lord plagued the people because they made the calf which Aaron made. 
Amen. We'll end our reading at the end of the chapter. We know the Lord will add his blessing to what is assuredly a very solemn portion of his word to read. And I add to this reading just one verse, a New Testament connection, you might say, from 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, where John writes, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Paul writes basically the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The verse escapes me, but he says basically the same thing. Keep yourselves from idols. And you see at once, don't you, something of a connection with what we've been studying about the false worshipers of Baal. Idolatry is one of those sins that can and should astonish us. What were those Israelites thinking? They had heard the very voice of God, a voice that moved them to fear and trembling, They had heard the very commandment from God himself that said to them, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. They heard that. They heard God himself announce that. They had seen the power of God and the way he had unleashed his plagues upon Egypt and brought the Israelites out of Egypt with a stretched out arm and a mighty hand. They had certainly known the favor of God in the way they had been delivered from those plagues and had been provided for in the wilderness with such blessings and power and favor. You wouldn't have thought it possible that they could sink so fast into idolatry. But here they are, in the words of our text, calling on Aaron to make them gods to go before them. The psalmist in the 115th Psalm gives a vivid picture of the idols of the heathen, beginning in verse 4. Listen to what the psalmist says. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. And then there follows a statement that shows us how idolatry can exist at all. And the very next verse in 115, Psalm 115 and verse 8, we're told, They that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. And doesn't that text graphically set forth for us the doctrine of man's total depravity? The makers of the idols are like the idols they make insofar as they too have eyes but are spiritually blind. They have ears, but are spiritually deaf. 
They have hands, but they can do nothing for God. They have feet, but they do not and cannot walk with God. They are as spiritually dead and insensitive as the idols that they craft. They that make them are like unto them, so is everyone that trusteth in them. So we may view such sin with utter astonishment, and yet our astonishment should be accompanied with humility, for we too were totally depraved, and we too still possess sinful natures that are vulnerable to the astonishing sin of idolatry. We do well to ask, what is really behind such a sin as this? What does such a sin look like today? Do Christians fashion images that those images may go before them? You wouldn't think so, would you? But neither would you think that these Israelites, with all that they had seen and heard and come to know about God, could fall into such crass superstition. Could it be that the sin of idolatry is actually more subtle than we realize? Could it be that we're more guilty of it than we realize? You may recall in my introduction from our last study in 1 Kings 18, I pointed out that Baal worship was not something that merely existed in the days of Elijah. We traced something of its history throughout the whole history of Israel, even after Elijah called fire down from heaven. So these are good questions to ask, whether or not uh, we're more guilty of it than we realize. These are good questions to ponder, especially if our desire is to worship God in spirit and in truth. What I'd like to do this morning is look at this vivid example of idolatry that we find in this chapter of Exodus and analyze it in terms of what it really looks like, what it really leads to, and perhaps more importantly, we want to consider what we should do about it when we detect it in our own hearts and lives. Our theme then this morning is simply this, golden calf worship in modern times. Golden calf worship in modern times. And the first question I want to raise with regard to golden calf worship in modern times is simply this, what does it look like? What does it look like? When you think of idolatry, the first thing that usually comes to mind is the worship of false gods, gods that are represented by images, a golden calf in this case. If you were to look in a Bible encyclopedia or a Bible dictionary under the heading of idolatry, you might see uh, any number of pictures of statues representing various gods. Or you may read in Acts chapter 17, verse 23, about Paul's visit to Athens, Greece. Verse 16 of that chapter tells us how Paul's spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. 
And a few verses later, he recounts to his audience in verse 23 that as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Now, the term devotions in that text is a little misleading. We generally think of devotions as religious activity, something we engage in, you know, on a personal level or a family level, our family devotions, our personal devotions, uh, the activity of reading and praying. The term here, however, in Acts uh, chapter 17, refers not so much to activity as to objects. And so another English translation renders it this way, as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. So idolatry can be associated with the worship of false gods, those false gods being represented by images. In our text in Exodus 32, though, the Israelites were calling for the making of false gods by the use of an image of a golden calf. So we read their demand upon Aaron, up, make us gods which shall go before us. What is most striking in the passage, however, is that once Aaron actually fashioned this false god, this golden calf, he chose to apply a different interpretation to it. Look at what he says in verse 5. And when Aaron saw it, that is, this golden calf, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Underscore that. Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And you will notice that the word Lord there is in all capital letters, This is the Hebrew word for Jehovah. Aaron was not calling for the worship of false gods. He was calling for the worship of Jehovah through the use of the image he had just crafted. That's why I suggest we're dealing with something here that could even be worse than pagan Baal worshipers in 1 Kings 18. The image was to function, in his interpretation of it, as a reminder of Jehovah, not as the false gods that were worshipped in Egypt. So between the Israelites and Aaron, we are able to surmise that what was taking place in the fashioning of this golden calf was a breaking of the first and second commandments that they had heard announced by God himself, The Israelites were set to worship false gods, and Aaron was set to worship Jehovah, the true God, but with the use of an image. Aaron, I suppose, could have viewed that image as an emblem of the gods that Jehovah had just conquered in the overthrow of Egypt. It could have served in his mind as a reminder that Jehovah had been all-powerful, in bringing them out of Egypt. And this is where idolatry becomes more subtle. Aaron was not calling for the worship of false gods. He was calling for a feast to Jehovah, 
the true God, but he was calling for God to be worshipped in the wrong way. I never will forget one of my professors when I was a student at Bob Jones. There was uh, one of the professors who himself was a minister and who was kind of head over all the preacher boys, and he was telling us about how shocked he was when he discovered this in his reading of this chapter. They're, they're worshiping Jehovah. Aaron's calling for the worship of Jehovah. He was so astonished by that that he called uh, Dr. Barrett, the Hebrew scholar then still at Bob Jones University, and he wanted to know from Dr. Barrett, am I reading this right? Am I understanding this right? They've crafted a golden calf and they're worshiping Jehovah. And Dr. Barrett said, yeah, that's, that's absolutely the case. And that comes out most clearly in our English translation with the word LORD in all capital letters. So the thing that needs to be recognized and appreciated when it comes to the worship of God is that God tells his people how he is to be worshipped. God tells his people how he's to be worshipped. Away from the scene of this idolatry is Moses, who was still up in the mount. He would be in that mount for quite an extended period of time, and the things that would be conveyed to Moses while he was in the mount would be dealing with the subject of how God is to be worshipped. The tabernacle pattern would be given to Moses. Each piece of tabernacle furniture would be laid out in precise detail. The pattern for the priest's garment would also be given, as well as the formula for the incense that would be burned on the altar of incense. If you've read through the later chapters in the book of Exodus, then you know how much meticulous detail is conveyed to Moses by God himself. Indeed, there is so much detail given here that this is where a lot of people who set out to read their Bibles during the year, they get bogged down when they reach this portion in Exodus because the detail is so specific. And so minute, given by God himself. Now the question that oftentimes arises in the minds of some Christians, especially in the minds of young Christians, is a question that goes something like this. Why is God so picky about the way he's worshipped? Why does God go into such detailed instruction with Moses? Shouldn't it satisfy God that he's worshipped at all? Shouldn't God be happy that he is being worshipped rather than the false gods? The answer is, of course, that we don't do God favors. God does not sit in heaven and become pleased when rebellious sinners worship him. Uh, sinners don't have access to God. Those that are rebels against God cannot approach one who is majestic in holiness, fearful in praises. If God is to be approached at all in a way that he will accept, then it must be on the terms that he stipulates. 
And it should be noted here that all of the meticulous detail that was given to Moses was not given arbitrarily. God was not giving, in other words, all of these detailed instructions simply because he had the authority to give detailed instructions, and it was his prerogative to give detailed instructions if that was his desire. Oh, it is his prerogative, but that does not take away from the fact that there was good reason behind every detail that was prescribed to Moses Everything you see that went into the pattern of Old Testament worship was designed to portray some aspect of Christ himself. The study of the tabernacle and the worship associated with the tabernacle can become a very rich study when you learn to view it from a Christological perspective taking note of how each piece of furniture in the tabernacle has a connection to Christ. And when you realize the Christological significance of each piece of tabernacle furniture and all the sacrifices that were offered in Old Testament worship, then you realize that God would guard the way he was worshipped because God was jealous for the honor of his son, and apart from his son, there is no approach to God. And if you are uh, meddling with the picture, you are basically defacing a picture designed to point to Christ. What a far cry from God picturing his son do we find beneath that mountain in the camp of the Israelites when Aaron decides that Jehovah can be worshipped in any fashion that sinful men would invent? In Aaron's own mind, he may have even viewed himself as a contender for the faith. Since he wasn't calling for the worship of false gods, but for the worship of Jehovah, the true God, through the use of images. You would have noticed in the reading of this chapter in Exodus that God makes no distinction between the Israelites and Aaron. They all became guilty of idolatry. And God was so incensed by the notion that he could be approached in any way that sinful men decided to approach him that he would have unleashed his wrath upon them all, including Aaron, and would have started over again with Moses. But let's bring the matter of idolatry now to our day and our culture. And the lesson that we must take from this 32nd chapter of Exodus that applies in every age, including our own, is that men cannot and must not invent their own ways to worship God. As Presbyterians, we adhere to what is sometimes referred to as the regulative principle and I would say that this chapter in Exodus uh, contributes to the establishment of that principle. The regulative principle works like this. You have to have sanction from God for every element in your worship. 
it stands in contrast to what is sometimes referred to as the normative principle, which goes something like this. It's okay to do anything you want in worship as long as it's not forbidden by God. Uh, We take a narrower approach, and I believe a scriptural approach, and looking for every element in our worship to have divine sanction behind it. Why do we sing in the worship services? Because we have divine sanction for it. Why do we pray in our worship services? There's divine sanction for that as well. Why do we preach the word? There's divine sanction for that also. None of these elements in worship were things that were just invented by men and followed as a tradition. No, they come with scriptural sanction. Okay? So the lesson we must take from this 32nd chapter of Exodus that applies in every age is that men cannot and must not invent their own ways to worship God, not even if they're worshiping the true God. And of course, the lesson should be quite plain that there is no approach to God apart from Christ. And before we leave this point, I think it's worth noting that there are a couple of other things that appear in this chapter that are found most often wherever idolatry can be found. The thing to keep in mind here is that idolatry is always man-made and springs from man fashioning a god, or, I'd go a step further, fashioning a style of worship according to his own carnal pleasure. Three verses give us the picture of what you could call golden calf worship style, if you will. The first is found in verse 6. Notice what it says there. And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Now that last phrase, they rose up to play, is translated in another version this way. They got up to indulge in revelry. And my favorite paraphrase reads it like this. The people sat down to eat and drink and then began to party. It turned into a wild party. So the message paraphrase, the paraphrase, the message puts it. And what a vivid picture begins to emerge of the kind of worship style that was taking place with golden calf worship. The next verse that contributes to the picture of their worship style is found in verse 18. As Moses and Joshua come down from the mount, Joshua makes the remark to Moses that there's a noise of war in the camp. Moses replies that this is not the voice of war, but the noise of them that sing do I hear, verse 18. Think about that for a moment. The voice of singing being mistaken for the voice of war. The picture that comes to mind is the scene, and I think I used this illustration for the Baal worshippers last week. The scene you have in 
Old Western movies when savage Indians are dancing around, working themselves into a frenzy in preparation for war. Or the Baal worshippers in 1 Kings 18, leaping about the altar in wild frenzy. The third verse that contributes to the picture of the worship style is found in verse 25. And the authorized version might be a little restrictive in the word it uses when we read, And Moses saw that the people were naked. The term naked is a word that literally means were let loose. So one English version translates the phrase this way, the people had broken loose. Another version translates it, the people were out of control. And you know that whenever people break loose in this fashion and lose control, immodesty follows, and hence the use of the word by the authorized version translators that they were naked. They were cut loose and they were immodest, is the picture that emerges. So you begin to get the picture then. This worship service, this feast to the Lord, amounted to a sensual and immodest breaking off the bands of restraint in order to carry on in a wild frenzy. If I could put it in common modern jargon, I think it would uh, uh, go like this. This was a fun worship service. Isn't that a common appeal today, especially among young people? Come to such and such a church where worship is fun, which amounts to saying where worship is carnal and worship is unrestrained and worship becomes a time that allows you to throw off restraint and cut loose, so to speak. The vividness of this scene of idolatry given to us in Exodus 32 certainly demonstrates to us yet another reason why God dictates to his people how he is to be worshipped. What if God left it to human beings to determine for themselves how they would worship God? What if God said, in effect, it really doesn't matter how you worship me as long as you make sure that you're worshiping me rather than false gods? Well, I think this chapter in Exodus shows us what worship would become and how unbecoming to the character of God worship would be if God left it to man to invent the way in which he was to be worshipped. So we see in this chapter what idolatry looks like. Let's move quickly to deal with the second question. What gives rise to such a thing? What gives rise to the kind of idolatry and the kind of worship that we find in Exodus 32? I said in my introduction that this chapter moves us to astonishment. These Israelites who had heard the voice of God, had seen the power, known the protection and provision of God, now fall into such degradation that they completely cave into their carnal natures. How does such a thing happen? More importantly, could such a thing happen to you and to me? 
Well, if you know anything about the strength of inbred sin, then you know that such a fall is possible to any one of us. Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 12, And if you would guard yourself against such a total collapse to the flesh, then it becomes important to see what contributes to such a fall. And the answer to the question is given to us in the very first verse. Verse 1, notice what it says. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what is become of him. Do you see what led to their fall into carnality? It was a lack of patience on their part. And you might say it was due to having too much time on their hands, I suppose, with nothing better to do. I'll try to exercise restraint here by only mentioning that so much that takes place on social media sites like Facebook takes place because of too much idle time. There's time for subtle and malicious gossip, much of which springs from the flesh and is thinly covered over with a phony semblance of spirituality. I'm not going to say that everything fits into that category and there's no legitimate use for social media, but much of it does fall into that category. A good Bible verse to keep near at hand, I've cited this verse with regard to the things you may watch on television. Psalm 119 and verse 37, where you have the psalmist's prayer, Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity, and quicken thou me in thy way. I think another verse that we would do well to keep near at hand when it comes to social networking could be 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 6, where Paul says, For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts. You might do well to ask yourselves when you're entering your posts on Facebook if what you're doing falls under the censure of that verse in 1 Timothy. I can't help but wonder if some, indeed much of that time, may have been put to better spiritual use by actually waiting on the Lord. But that does take patience, and it does take persevering faith. And how many churches today do you suppose have fallen into idolatry or into idolatrous worship styles because of a lack of patience? when it comes to waiting on God. Instead of patient, persevering in prayer for God to work in a way that will bring glory to His name, for God to work in a way where it becomes unmistakably plain that God is the one who is at work, church leaders instead lose patience and decide that it's time to plan to plan on how worship services can be made more fun and more lively and thus become more relevant and engaging 
for the youth. I'm reminded just now of the Isle of Lewis revival, that account that you have from Duncan Campbell of how the Lord moved on that isle in the early 50s. Faith-free Presbyterian Church used to give out cassette tapes. That's how far back this goes of the Isle of Lewis revival account. And you don't find anything, anything on it that comes close to resembling the worship style that you have in Exodus 32. Quite the contrary, you have men on their faces before God under deep conviction of sin, knowing great humility. I think of one scene that's described of a man calling out to God and saying to him, I can't help but feel, O Lord, that hell is too good for me. He had that kind of sense of sin and contrition until at last the peace of God is known. And then you have joy that is tempered by humility. We do much better to heed the word of the Lord that comes through the prophet Habakkuk in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 3, where the Lord says through the prophet, For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie, though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Wait for the vision, wait for the real thing. Wait for the Lord to move in such a way that it's traceable to his hand alone, and not to any planning or any gimmicks or any marketing techniques that are traceable to man. A very easy thing to say, but a great challenge to our faith to learn that God's timetable is not our timetable, and God is never late, and God is never in a hurry. And if we don't have the patience to bring ourselves into subjection to God's timetable, we make ourselves all the more vulnerable to the kind of idolatry that we read of here. So we've seen what it looks like, and I hope I've been able to convey to you some of the more subtle manifestations of idolatry. We've seen a major contributing cause to it comes from a lack of patience. I'll only take a moment to conclude this study by raising one last question, which is simply this, what must be done with idolatry? And the answer to this question is that we should be as incensed by it as Moses was incensed by the sight and sounds of the idolatry that he beheld. Here is an instance where there is a place for righteous indignation, okay? Preach to yourselves. You've heard me say that before. Preach to yourselves with the fervency that would have you, like Moses, throwing the tables of the law down in intense indignation, breaking them beneath the mount, and then grinding the idol into powder. Preach to yourselves with the same fervency that would call you to the Lord's side and would call you to take up arms and then move you to make your way through the camp of your own heart, slaying every vestige of idolatry that you discover in your heart. 
Self-judgment, you know, is the privilege that the Lord gives us in order that we may avoid his chastisement. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11.31. So we preach to ourselves, and then we thank God that we have an intercessor in heaven. We've read how Moses' intercession prevented the Lord's wrath from being unleashed upon the Israelites. Moses pleaded the honor of God's name, and he pleaded the covenant promises. And so does Christ, a greater intercessor than Moses, plead for you and for me that our sins, including our sins of idolatry, may be put away and put under the blood. We do well to follow a study of Exodus 32 with the study of what takes place in the very next chapter, Exodus 33. I'll leave it to you to read the chapter. I reference it often. And if you read it, you can draw the lesson from it that Moses gives by his example of what could be viewed as the alternative to idolatry. Look at his petition in verse 8 and keep in mind that this petition follows Moses' successful intercession for forgiveness and for the presence of God to go with them into the promised land. And after gaining much from a gracious God, Moses then prays, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. There's the alternative to idolatry. There's the spiritual pursuit that should engage your heart rather than allowing your heart to fall into carnal manifestations of idolatry. Oh God, show me more of Christ, more of his saving fullness, see, more of his love who died for me. May God help us then to see the heinous nature of idolatry. It is not simply an Old Testament phenomenon that only had to do with the making of images. And that's why you find, and that's why I cited that text from 1 John, little children flee from idols. It was John Calvin who said that the human heart is an idol factory, manufacturing idols regularly. Oh, may the Lord enable us all to recognize idolatry when it manifests itself and judge it and replace it with the spiritual and scriptural seeking of more of Christ's glory. Let's close then in prayer. Oh, Lord, as we bow in thy presence this morning, to bring this meeting to a close. We pray for the needed grace to search our own hearts and to recognize the things in our hearts that are not pleasing to Thee. And we pray, O Lord, that Thou wilt help us to be patient in our waiting on Thee. And we pray as Thou hast taught us to pray, and with this application to idolatry, 
O Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And help us to behold more of the glory of thy Son and live in accordance with the revelation of that glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.